Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 232 of Manage the Wild. I'm your host, Nick Madsen. Today, we're going to be talking about the topic of whether, whoops, sorry, whether wildlife can become political and when can it become political. And in today's podcast, we answer that. This is the second time I'm redoing this because in the first one, I called out some people, some groups that would have gotten me in trouble. I don't have direct evidence. I just have conversations that have told me certain things. And so instead of getting in trouble and backtracking and say I have no evidence, uh, I'm just going to redo the podcast I'm covering the same topics, but I'm going to come at it just a smidge differently and not get so personal. Because these topics, wildlife in general, I'm very passionate about. And when I see things being manipulated for money or for other political gain, it just, oh, just irks me, infuriates me. So what I want you to understand is in you're going to, we're going to cover this in today's podcast is when does wildlife management become political and it's at the beginning or it's at the very end, but it can't be once the management plan is in place because once it's in place, they are held to a standard and then uh, lawsuits and all those things can come into play. But before it becomes a management, uh, before it becomes a policy, or if there is uh, an emergency, uh, some type of emergency situation, then you can see some political stuff coming in. And that is what we're gonna talk about today. Hopefully that makes sense. Why is it political, though? Why? And my number one reason that I believe that wildlife becomes political is resource allocation. We are talking about land. We're talking about tags. They are worth a lot of money. Nationwide, billions of dollars. There's a hunting industry, six, eight billion dollars a year that gets pumped into this hunting machine. And hunting permits are now starting to become more and more important. There's corporations out there that are buying up land so they can go hunting, so then they can use their product to show. There's all these things that are coming into play. It's becoming more and more expensive, becoming more political because of that. Allocation of resources, how do permits get divided? Each state has their own way of dividing up permits based upon how they've set it, whether it's 80% comes to uh, in-state residents and 20 goes out and then they divide up those 20. They all have their own different way, but how you divvy those up can make a huge difference in how people make money. There are uh, nonprofits out there that are getting tags and they're able to auction these tags off. Uh, In the state of Utah, it's getting pretty famous for their Antelope Island tags, a couple hundred thousand for a 40 inch mule deer. Uh, Some of their elk tags are also getting expensive, 250, 300,000 for elk tags here in Utah. So how these tags are divvied up can play a huge part in how the political process goes and how land is being used. And there are interest groups from both sides, every side, every, like if you had a circle and you were divided up into fractions, there are a lot of individual pieces of the pie that are all lobbying for their own thing. And there are some larger groups that have a lot more money 
but everybody is still lobbying for their own thing. Legislation and regulation. These are very political, and it depends on the process. Uh, we had a situation not too long ago where some CWMU laws were changed based on permit allocation. Again, resource allocation, permits, the way permits were divvied out. A uh, gentleman had a certain CWMU, and he got mad because his neighbor had another CWMU, but it was smaller, but they were still getting the same number of permits, and he didn't think that was fair. He lobbied to get the CWMUs to change it, and they changed it. Now, based upon so many acres, you get so many tags. It used to be based upon the amount of animals, because if you have a lot of habitat destruction going on, we wanted to make sure that we had enough permits that were being allocated to these CWMUs, but no longer. It's about making sure it's fair for everyone. And so laws and regulations get passed and changed. And this is where it really gets tricky. Think of Colorado. Think of the wolf situation. It's very political, but it wasn't political within the wildlife side. It got political outside. They did a backdoor referendum. They got a bunch of public opinion. They brought a lot of outside money. There was billions uh, from one group that they had waiting if they needed to, to be able to dump into it. They ended up spending a lot of money, and a lot of it came from outside the state. Then they got a few areas that were very on their side, and it didn't matter what the rest of the state said because they got enough signatures, they got the wolf issue passed, and now wolves are being brought into Colorado. They took wildlife management out of the state of, wild, of Colorado's hands and put it into public opinion. And so that creates problems. Uh, also, Legislation and regulation, uh, that's very political in the beginning. If you are creating a new elk hunting unit, uh, let's say in Utah, you're coming up with uh, an elk hunting unit that has not had elk before, they've got to put together a management plan for those elk in that area. They're gathering people all over within the unit and without, and they're bringing them together to come up with an objective. That's where the political situation comes in. If you are a large landowner and you have a lot of elk on your property and you don't have enough for a CWMU, you need, uh, what is it, say 10,000 acres, 6,000, six, no, I think it's 10,000 acres. If you have 10,000 acres, you can do a CWMU for elk, but you don't have that. You got 5,000 acres and nobody else wants to join you. So you want that to be an any bull unit, so then you can bring hunters in and charge them, and so you're going to start lobbying for that. Or maybe you wanted a limited entry unit, and so it's difficult to get tags, but then you're going to start advertising your land has remarkable bulls, big bulls, 350, 380s, 400s, 440s, whatever it is. You're going to start pushing for that management plan to go one way or the other based upon your interests or who are the major players in those groups. Funding. Funding has a huge part. Right now, um, sportsmen have a large say in what goes on in wildlife management. But when you're outfunded, like what happened in Colorado with the wolves, then you start to lose 
where that say goes and then where you're getting your money from. If our state's taking money from private entities and using that money for wildlife management, dang right. Normally it goes into a big fund and then they disperse it so it can't be swayed from one side to the other. But there are situations where these groups figure out a way to go around that and they will buy a piece of equipment or they will purchase a piece of ground or they will start dumping money into collars so they can start manipulating the system one way or another. Because ultimately it comes down to where is the money coming from? That's who you're going to start listening to. CWMUs in the state of Utah are popular in the state of Utah. Wildlife management agencies outside of Utah are uncomfortable with the idea because now you are monetizing wildlife in a way that makes it difficult to manage because we are talking about millions of dollars that people in the state of Utah are making off of wildlife versus keeping it open and not as much control and turning it more privatized. There's Conflicts of interest. This is where I got into trouble. Uh, I started naming groups that I know are having conflicts of interest in wildlife management. And so this is the section that I got to redo because I called out groups. We're not going to call out groups. Conflicts of interest happen in your local, regional meetings and your overall wildlife boards, wildlife commissions. They are happening always, because this is really where that conflict uh, comes into play, where the politics comes into play. Before a wildlife management is ever created, let's say uh, wildlife, uh, let's say it's a mule deer management plan. You get your group and you come up with what you are recommending for a management plan for mule deer. In the area that I live in, it's been recommended that the population reach 20,000, which is insane because it's been that since the early 90s. And every time we get 19,000, 18,000, we crash 5,000 and then we have to start building back up. So now you get your wildlife management plan. As a biologist, you got all these people together and they all agreed on this plan. You then present your plan to the regional areas for their approval. Again, this is where politics gets introduced. People on these regional meeting or regional area committees are going to have their own groups that they are being sponsored by. If you're an ag guy and they're increasing uh, elk by 20,000, 10,000, 2,000, you're not going to be looked at and very favorable from all the other ag guys because you're allowing elk to increase, which is going to compete for the same food source resources as the cattle. And so you're going to start pushing and saying, no, that's, that's way too high. Uh, if you're a sportsman that's involved with some type of group and their whole focus is on mule deer, and you start advocating for less mule deer, this is the situation we find ourselves in at the local area that I'm at, is we have a lot of people who are involved in these committees who are, it would be stupid for them to say, we need less mule deer. Scientifically, we've shown that the population will never reach 20. But if they come in to these meetings and say, we need less mule deer, they're going to get kicked out of their special interest groups and it's not going to look very good for them.
this is where the conflicts of interest come into play because they are advocating for or against wildlife based upon their own things instead of excusing themselves. Let's say that you are on one of these rack meetings and you have a CWMU and you're changing CWMU laws, then you should excuse yourself from voting. That is not always happening. And so that's what needs to change. Uh, and that's the areas that need to be really looked at because that's where the politics is being introduced. Also, another one is wildlife boards, wildlife commissions. Uh, again, those guys are appointed by the governors. And so you need to look at those individuals very closely. What are they associated with? Who are they associated with? What are they focusing on? What could they care less? I've watched members who, you're talking about elk, and they could care less that you're talking about elk. But you start talking about cougars, and there is something, whether they're ag or something, they are just constantly going against cougars. It may not even be a part of the state where they are at, but their whole focus is to get rid of cougars or whatever the reason is. Uh, that's one of the situations why you're going to be hard-pressed to ever find wolves actively managed here in the state of Utah and allowed to be here is because it's such a heavy ag industry that it would be very difficult uh, to bring that type of issue and for these guys to vote yes on that would go against their livelihoods. And that's where the conflict of interest happens. Public opinion is huge. Colorado, the wolves, they just got that law passed because public opinion in key areas, not across the state, but we're talking about Colorado Springs, Denver, large cities, different viewpoints from the rest of the state. They got that passed. Outside money really brought that and change the way things uh, play out. Public opinion matters. Uh, I have seen topics in these regional area meetings where you didn't think it was going to be that big of an issue, but yet you get a couple of people who are just really fired up and passionate about a subject, and they can turn the whole room into chaos, and they could take one management plan and completely upend it. Uh, not too long ago, there was a, a rack meeting and a habitat manager was presenting a habitat plan that they had the committee and everybody went through and they all agreed upon it. They were going to do a management, wildlife management area, complete closure January 30th through April. But there was still cougar hunting going on, and the cougar hunters were not allowed to hunt cougars on that WMA. They currently were under the way the law reads now. They did away with that. One hunter blew up the entire plan. They had to go back and resit down because they got rid of the cougar hunting on wildlife management areas, and public opinion just flipped complete opposite. Policy changes happen all the time. This is where. After a management plan is put into place and you start going, policy changes, this is where things start to get challenged. Prioritize conservation, hunting, and economic development differently. Depending on who your governor is, would completely alter the wildlife board, wildlife commissions, and the racks just 
based upon a different governor and who you have, because you could be focused on conservation of sage grouse and mule deer or uh, hunting and growing it. So now you're, you're starting, you're getting rid of a lot of these uh, larger premium units and you're starting to do any bull type hunts because you're now focused on having more access to wildlife instead of the premium wildlife. Economic development, I think, is a place where Utah really sits. We do have conservation and hunting, but we're definitely looking at it from an economic standpoint. How much money can we generate off of wildlife? Now, that's just my opinion. CWMUs are what is in my opinion, pushing it that way. CWMUs and social media. Uh, a lot of these big name hunters that you're seeing hunt and kill these big deer, big bulls, a lot of them are taking place in Utah and it's on these CWMUs that you're not familiar with. International relationships can change the way wildlife is managed. Think about migratory birds, geese, ducks, swans, all of these coming in the United States from Canada, and then from Mexico into the United States, from the United States into Mexico. Think about how those wildlife policies would alter if we had an unfriendly relationship. Let's say Canada all of a sudden is like, no, we're going to increase our harvest by double. The uh, It would really put a hurting on those flyways and it would make less opportunity or leave less opportunity for people here in the United States. So you need to make sure that you are playing politically both sides. Mexico and the United States, they have uh, an endangered species that currently on the border, hopping back and forth, and that's the ocelots. So there needs to be some working together there, making sure you have those good relationships to make sure you can manage and keep that population healthy because uh, it's on the brink of being lost forever. Uh, I'm going to talk about this one last uh, it was ethical and moral values, but environmental policy. Um, when people think about environmental policy, they don't really understand. But then think about lead ban uh, in ammunition. Now, I am not opposed to lead, the lead ban uh, and buying other ammunition. I'm, I'm completely comfortable with that. But it was also my generation where you started to see the lead ban popping up more and more. And it was my dad's generation that went from having no ban to using number twos, number three lead shot on pretty much everything to now they they can't and you're having to buy uh, ammunition that's a little more expensive. I'm more comfortable with it. I think the generation uh, down the road is going to be even more comfortable with it. And that one is another environmental policy. Those are often shaped uh, outside of the state's controls, but there are some wildlife policies that are being impacted by environmental. And then let's talk about the last one, ethical and moral values. This one's a difficult one uh, to talk about. It's politically, it's politically motivated in one aspect or another. Let's say you're really comfortable hunting lions in Africa, and then you go out and you target one that has a social media following. Next, you're being called into question everything you've ever done in your life. And that's what we saw with Cecil and other situations. Now, I'm not opposed to going and hunting lions in Africa. Uh, I'm comfortable with it. I can see why people are both for and against it. Uh, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone wanders outside. 
uh, of Yellowstone and there's conflict there and it ends up being shot uh, because it attacked some guy on a trail, but it was yet num bear number 33. Uh, we don't give him names. We give them numbers, but then we call them by their number, which is now a name. So we are doing the same thing. But there is always going to be debates over trophy hunting, whether you agree with it or you don't. Uh, trophy hunting, uh, even in the state of Utah, uh, I'm really okay with it because of the amount of money that it brings in. $250,000 tag auctioned off for mule deer on Antelope Island, and all that funding goes directly to Habitat funding. I'm really comfortable with that. But politics are in everything, but it's not the people you think. It's not the biologists. The biologists are required to manage species based upon the management plan, and any deviation with that can be a termination of their job. The politics is introduced before or introduced after. They have the management plan in place. They don't like it. They can alter it. Before the management plan becomes comes into place, they can use their political sway one way or the other to alter it. That is what I got going on for you guys today. Have a great day. Stay wild.